Hello, this is the David Eagle Podcast. We're looking back at 2016, a year that saw me release 366 daily podcasts for that year. In order to streamline things so that we don't have 366 podcasts just for 2016 alone, I am condensing them into these weekly omnibus editions. We've reached week 13. We're in March, and you join me for the third week in Australia, where I'm on tour with my folk band, The Young'uns. When you hear this sound, it means we're moving on to the next dollop. Enjoy. Fortunately, we managed to get booked onto today's flight to Canberra and have arrived safely in spite of the fact that I was a bit worried that I might be responsible for killing everybody on board the plane. Just before we reached the plane, there was a lady checking our boarding passes. As I got closer to her in the queue, I heard her ask someone, Is there anything dangerous in your bag, sir? To which the man simply responded, No. And that was it. He was allowed to pass. Then the person behind me was asked, Do you have any spare batteries in your bag? To which the lady answered, No and again was allowed to pass. The person behind her was asked whether he had anything dangerous in his bag. He didn't even give an answer, but just marched purposefully onto the plane. Rather than calling him back, she just trailed off halfway through her question and said nothing about it. The next lady was asked whether she had any spare batteries. And again, the answer was no. We were getting close to the front of the queue. I did have a pack of batteries in my bag. Should I say something? I didn't want to have to forfeit them as I needed them in order to record these dollops and things for the young podcast. But at the same time, I didn't want to be responsible for killing people. If taking batteries onto a plane is dangerous, then why didn't someone say something earlier? We'd already had numerous checks before we got to this point, which is right to the steps of the plane. It seemed a bit stupid to wait until the last moment before asking people about batteries. And what did she mean by spare batteries? She wasn't asking people if they had any batteries, it was whether they had spare batteries. If the batteries are housed in my digital recorder, then does this mean that they aren't classed as spare? But if they are loose and just lying around in my bag, does that then fall under the spare bracket? The batteries were all together in a pack. Does this still make them spare? There were still lots of people waiting to board, and I didn't want to hold everyone up by asking lots of questions. But surely the question is too open to interpretation in order for me to know how to answer it properly, without posing further questions to establish whether my batteries are deemed spare or not, and whether they are classified as dangerous. I'm also a bit confused by the seeming casualness and random of her questions. Sometimes she'd ask someone if they had anything dangerous in their bags. Other times she would ask about the spare batteries and sometimes she wouldn't ask any questions at all but just let them go through unchallenged. And seemingly if someone doesn't want to answer her questions then they can just walk off and she'll just let them go without contest. Plus what does she mean by dangerous? We're not the experts. We're just boarding a plane in order to get from A to B. How are we meant to know what she means by the word dangerous? Surely, if she's asking the questions, and then the questions are that important, then rather than relying on people's memories to remember what's in their bag, their correct interpretation of what's meant by dangerous, and also their honesty, you shouldn't be able to just say no, and then be allowed to walk on the plane, or just walk off and ignore the question completely. The system, if you can call it a system, was clearly random and ridiculous. Should I feel obliged to report my batteries even if she doesn't ask? I mentioned it to Sean and he suggested that I should just not say anything, even if asked. He didn't seem to be too concerned about possibly being an accomplice in his own death. There were three people to go before me in the queue. The first wasn't asked anything, but was just allowed to go through, even though he had a large bag with him that could have been bulging to bursting with batteries. The lady next to me in the queue was asked the battery question. I'd noted that so far only ladies had been asked the spare battery. 
Batteries question. Was this just a coincidence or another crazy random element of their ridiculous system? The man in front of me was asked whether he had anything dangerous in his bag, to which he responded that he didn't, and he was allowed to just go through. Then it came to me and Sean, and we were just waved through without question, even though we both had bags and I had batteries. In fact, we were waved through so quickly that she'd already moved on to the next person in the queue, who was being asked if they had anything dangerous in their bag. I mean, I could hold up the queue, even though I'd been dismissed, and explained to the woman my confusing battery situation, but given that there were potentially hundreds of people already on the plane with batteries and dangerous items, I felt as if there was little point, so we just boarded the plane with my batteries and Sean's collection of knives. Fortunately, despite the haphazard safety checks, the plane touched down in Canberra absolutely fine without issue, and we're ready now to play our final Australian festival before heading home. Just three days to go until we head back to England. We're staying at the same hotel for those three days, and we have Wi-Fi, which means that the dollop challenge should live to see at least another three days. However, we do only have an allowance of one gigabyte of data, and there are three of us sharing the Wi-Fi. So if the challenge fails and a dollop isn't released, then it's probably because Sean or Michael have been using up the bandwidth watching porn. Perhaps I'll have to go out and buy some porn DVDs in order to keep them off the internet, and thus save this project. The trouble is that it's so difficult to find something that they've both not seen before. Any suggestions would be greatly appreciated, Chloe. Knowing my luck, I'll probably be spotted in the shop buying the porn by the lady who accused me of being sexist at our gig last weekend. I might have to buy a gay male porn DVD as well, simply as a strategical measure to guard against these bigoted chauvinistic claims. We saw the pissing dog lady for a third weekend running. In case you're not a David's Daily Digital dollop regular, yes, apparently they do exist, the pissing dog lady isn't the title of a porn film. We've moved on from that subject now, although to be honest, that's exactly the kind of porn film that uh, Michael and Sean would go for. It's a lady who dresses up as a dog, howls, barks and rolls around on the floor and squirts a water pistol into the air to represent pissing. We saw her at the last two Australian festivals that we've done and now she's back again. The Pissing Dog Lady isn't the only dollop title that sounds like a potential porn DVD. Many of my blog titles could easily form the name of a porn film. If there are any people who work in the porn industry listening, then you are welcome to use any of these dollop titles for a percentage of the DVD's profits. Young Hungarian Gay Plumbers, Lock Up Your Virgins. There's a blog post called I've Got a Habit, which could be about a nun with a sex addiction, possibly an acted recreation of the Sister Abbey song from Dollop 82. Dollop 51 is called A Proposition for Tony Blackburn. It's an innocent blog post, but I'm sure that a porn film director will be brimming with ideas when he sees a title like that. And the upside is that Tony Blackburn is probably looking for another job, and porn might be it. Although, on second thoughts, he might be keen to stay away from that side of things for the time being, given the dubious reasons behind his sacking. Let's put the idea on the maybes list for the time being. Dollop 64's title could make for a very interesting uh, porn horror crossover film. Psychos, murderers and vegans. My favourite scene in that film is when one of the vegans faces an ethical dilemma. She is sucking on a man's penis, but then begins to wonder whether, being a vegan, she is allowed to swallow the man's ejaculate, as that would be surely consuming animal products. You can hear her inner monologue playing out as she carries out her pleasuring. Has she already broken the rules, given that she's currently got his meat in her mouth? 
I don't just want these porn films to be all about sex and smut. They need to have other dimensions to them as well, and I think that the vegans' ethical dilemma scene is a great example of creating thought-provoking pornography. I won't tell you what she decides to do because I really don't want to spoil the ending in case you end up watching it. Return to Lender, a teenager's melodramatic concept album set inside a university library. So then, my friends, from vegan porn stars, we swiftly move to another composition from my 18-year-old self. Only this time, it's not just one song, it's an entire album. Return to Lender was the name of my rather melodramatic concept album set inside a university library, and it tells the story of what happens when I go to the library and realise that my book is overdue. I know, already you're hooked. Unfortunately, the album never actually got made. Uh, there's only one track that was made, and I'm going to play that track for you now, and then I'm going to tell you more about the inspiration behind it, because <laughs> I know you all sort of want to know your, what's going on, sort of a director's commentary in a way. <laughs> then I'm going to show you some of the other lyrics as well, and some of the other ideas for this unrecorded album. But you never know, there might be someone listening. I'm, I'm always open to ideas. Wouldn't it be brilliant if these ideas all came into fruition? So my uh, nasal sounds were commissioned by BBC Radio 3. My cauliflower routine was snapped up by Peter Kay. My pornography franchise came to fruition. I think, you know, there's so many possibilities here that people just aren't tapping into with these dollops. The track I'm going to play you is the second track from the album. The first track goes like this. I haven't actually got a recording, but the first track goes like this. The lyrics are, and I think you kind of see the flaw in the opening few lines here. A very extraordinary occurrence happened to me today. I went to the library. What more can I say? <laughs> now bearing in mind this is an hour-long concept album, you know, this is a, a pretty hefty tome. I mean, there's quite a few lyrics in this. I don't think it's the best thing to say, what more can I say, only two lines into the album. <laughs> the, a very important occurrence happened to me today. I went to the library, what more can I say? Within two lines I've said, what, well, what more can I say? That, that's it. I mean, if it was a very extraordinary occurrence, presumably I could say a lot more than that. So already, hasn't got off to the best start, really, this album. So that's the opening line, and then it goes, there's a bit more of the track where it kind of tells you about realising that my book was overdue and the horror that I felt when I realised. Uh, but then we move on to this song. I think some of this has got real potential. There's other bits which are a little bit more haphazard, they're a bit more random. Doesn't really make much sense. Maybe a little bit too surreal. I'm not sure what's going on with parts of it. But before we do that, I want to explain that I was listening to uh, Pink Floyd's the wall quite a lot during this time when I was about 18 and I think I kind of really have got into that kind of melodramatic style of writing, singing and recording. You really hear that. If you've heard The Wall by Pink Floyd then you'll know what I'm talking about here in the way that I deliver this. There's a few weird things in there but one of the weird things is I mention a tiers de Picardy which isn't really a very funny bit of the song. I'm not sure why the heck I put it in but as I said there's quite a lot of surreal bits. But anyway, in case you're wondering, a tiers de Picardy is when musically you go from a major to a minor key. So that features in the song just in case you're wondering what the heck was going on with that reference because that's what happens musically. But anyway, it's a little bit surreal but I'm going to play it regardless. This is track two from my concept album set inside a university library, Return to Lender. Today I got a library fine But I didn't have any money at the time And so I said I'd pay tomorrow And so I will 
bloody book I didn't even read it That's what's so annoying My friends Cause if I'd read that book I wouldn't give off Nope I'd probably say I'd buy the book myself It's almost like that book was being nasty to me I wish I took that book back days ago
show you. Don't try and baffle me with a tear de Picardy. It never did work. Damn. I've had too many musicians try that trick on me before. Right then. What if I sleep with you, librarian? Will you let me off then? <laughs> yes. As the old saying goes in the library, you get me off and I let you off, my friend. <laughs> Good to hear it. Okay, so you're probably wondering what the heck's going on there at this point. It turns out that all that bit has been a dream. That's not real, as you'll discover in the next part of the song, which unfortunately isn't recorded. But it turns out that that's a dream sequence, all of that. Hence the kind of surrealism at times. It's kind of just very surreal, and I should have realised it was a dream. At that point, I realise it's a dream, and I start analysing. I spend the third track analysing all of the surreal bits and how I should have realised it was a dream. So that's the third track. So that's that. I'm looking at the lyrics, and I, I haven't actually written any lyrics for that, but that's the kind of the brief that I've written down for it. But I hadn't actually got anywhere with that. This is a kind of a project that sort of took up about three or four months of my life, and then uh, I thought it was the best idea, and then I don't know what happened. I might go into a relationship or something and actually forgot all about it. This is very much my single phase. So I think something probably happened to distract me. It's the pleasures of the flesh, ladies and gentlemen. That's the problem. Just think. This could have been a, an album. A full recorded album. But then, well, what can I say? What can I say? Exactly. It's my catchphrase. What more can I say? <laughs> anyway, so let's have a look at some of the other lyrics of this thing. So that was a dream, remember? So I haven't actually been into the library yet, so you've got all that to look forward to. So this is one of the lyrics of one of the songs. It's set to the tune of Annie. You know, the song from Annie, Tomorrow. And it goes like this to borrow to borrow it's only to borrow i got a book from the library what sorrow what sorrow i said i'd bring the book back tomorrow but i forgot so guess what i've got to pay a fee so it's kind of like taking a borrowing from a musical and uh, arguably making it better. And that's just called To Borrow, To Borrow. Um, <laughs> then the next one's called Taking a Lend. And the librarian accuses me of taking a lend because I've borrowed the book too long. Unfortunately, it doesn't really make much sense because I haven't taken a... Have I taken a lend? I'm not really sure if that makes sense grammatically. Because have I... I've taken... She's lent the book to me. I don't know whether I can say I'm taking a lend, but it's kind of her, it's a little cheeky way of saying, oh, you know, you, you, cause I say, do I really have to pay the fee? And she's saying, look mate, you're taking a lend. You're taking a lend, my friend, my friend. You're taking a lend, my friend. That's the lyrics for that one. Okay, we move on. The next one is where I try and deny responsibility for it. I use my blindness here. 
and I, uh, I claimed that I wasn't aware that the book was overdue. And she says, don't pass the book. At which point I say, but I thought that's what you wanted. She says, don't pass the book. I say, you don't want it back? Don't pass the book. I'm getting mixed messages. She said, stop being sarcastic. You know what I mean. And quite frankly, your attitude, sir, is obscene. Now you gotta give it back, so don't pass the book, my friend. And it goes on like that. It's kind of like me saying, but I thought you want me to pass you the book. Do you not want me to pass? I'm saying, no, don't pass the book. Don't deny responsibility. And as you can imagine, that joke goes on for quite some time. Because, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's hilarious, isn't it? You know, the idea of saying, don't pass the book. It's the kind of the mixed, the mixed messages there. It's the, you know, the, the joke obviously escalates. And I get more and more confused. And we both get more and more irate. I'm saying, I'm confused. Do you want me to give you the book? Do you don't want to give me the book? Yes, I want to give you the book. I'm saying, don't pass the book. And of course, for some reason, she doesn't use different words to say what she's saying. It just goes on like that for absolutely ages. Eventually that song ends, and then there's another treat around the corner for anybody who hasn't switched off the album or have fallen into a coma by this point. <laughs> This is quite a, a heart-wrenching song, actually. But now, it's from her mindset. And she's talking about what a lonely experience it is being a librarian. Because everyone hates you because you're always saying that they've got to pay a fee and pay the fine. And so she sings this song. It's quite heart-wrenching. It's called, I'm Such a Loner. And obviously, loner is spelt like loan, as in to loan a book. I'm such a loner, but more than a loner of books. Everyone giving me dirty looks. I'm such a loner. I don't know what to do. I wish I could let them off when their books are overdue, but I can't. It's the rules, and it causes me to despair. I'm such a loner, but what do you care? So, it's, yeah, it's suddenly, it was all jolly, wasn't it? A bit of a tongue-in-cheek, kind of, don't pass the book. Oh, and all that kind of thing, you know. I, but I, I thought you want me to pass you the book. That joke, everyone's in hysterics with that. And then all of a sudden... It pulls you in a different direction. It's this heart-wrenching song. You know, the strings and things like that. And she's singing about being such a loner. And it's still a little bit funny because she's talking about the book and it's more of like a, a wry bit of humour there, as I'm sure you'll, you'll appreciate. One of the lyrics of my song now, the next song, I sing, I'm just like the pages in this book. I'm feeling like I'm in a bind. The money I owe is weighing heavy on me. I can't get that fine out of my mind. Now, this is a good bit. I've got myself into a real fine mess. You see what I've done there? Fine, library fine, a real fine mess. I've got myself into a real fine mess. And when I say fine, you know, you know. I'm talking about the money I owe, I owe. I'm talking about the money I owe. I can remember that bit. I got myself into a... It's quite, this is quite a, like a, an upbeat, rocky one. I've got myself into a real fine mess. And when I say fine, you know, you know. I'm talking about the money I owe, I owe. I'm talking about the money I owe. Kind of like quite meatloaf-esque, that one. I'm just like the pages of this book. I'm feeling like I'm in such a bind. The money I owe is weighing heavy on me. I can't get this fine out of my mind. I've got myself into a real fine mess. And when I say fine, you know, you know. I'm talking about the money I owe, I owe. I'm talking about the money I owe. Hey, proper, you can hear it. You can hear it, don't you? I mean, it doesn't even be recorded. It's jumping out at you, isn't it? Seriously, if you want this commissioned, maybe I should do like a Kickstart campaign. So this is the, the final bit where I've, I've decided to pay the fine. I've paid the fine and all is forgiven. You know, we, we go away happy. And I say to the librarian, I declare to the librarian in this rather emotional bit, I declare to her, I'm turning over a new page. I'm starting a new chapter. It's not the same old story for me. 
I plotted my copybook, but at least it was mine. If it was the library's copybook, then they'd probably give me a fine. That's all I've got lyrically for that, but it's going to be quite an emotional bit where I, I realise the error of my ways. Obviously, I'm, I'm thinking about an album for now, if you all put in maybe £10 each. But maybe if you all put in £100 each, we could turn this into a musical. You know, we could do a proper theatre production. So, it's up to you, really. Get in touch if you're interested. <laughs> One of our sets yesterday was a kids' workshop. There's an entire area at the festival for children. The person on before us was an impressively lively for 9.30 in the morning. At the end of his spot, he threw a bucket of custard over himself, and the children roared and squealed with laughter. I was wrestling with whether I admired this man's commitment to entertaining children, that he would seemingly happily douse himself with custard for their amusement, or whether I pitied his life choices. Still, I suppose there are some people who feel ground down by the monotony of their dead-end jobs, and they are considered to be normal, well-adjusted adults. Whereas this man spends a couple of hours a day making silly noises and throwing custard over himself, and gets the reward of seeing and hearing joyous, ecstatic children. Arguably, this this man is more liberated than the majority of us. I wonder whether he gets sad though, knowing that one day the very children who once found him hilarious eventually turn their backs on him, finding him too immature and simplistic for their tastes. Or maybe he's happy in the knowledge that there will always be children to entertain and impress, and he's not in it to gain a long-term fan base. I certainly wouldn't be able to do his job. There's no way I'm getting covered in gloopy liquid for anyone, unless maybe there's an orgasm at the end of it. And even then, obviously the context would have to be very different, and certainly wouldn't involve standing on stage in front of lots of children. I think that's obvious, but I thought I'd best just make it clear, just in case. Again, like with the pissing dog lady, how do you get into a job like that? Did he just wake up one day and think, oh, I'm fed up with being a banker. Everyone hates me, and I'm feeling depressed. But what else can I do? Banking is all I know. Perhaps he was grappling with that very dilemma whilst eating dessert with his family and being so distracted in his thoughts, he accidentally knocked over the custard bowl, which drenched him. His instant reaction was annoyance, but then he looked up and through his custard splattered eyes, he saw his children laughing hysterically at what had just happened. He hadn't seen them this happy for months. He'd been such a miserable bore to live with. So shocked and moved was he by their reaction that he refilled the custard bowl and proceeded to pour it over his head. His children howled again with laughter. He felt so good. He couldn't remember when he'd last felt this happy. Come to think of it, it was probably the last time he'd been covered in custard. But let's not go into that here. He opened some more custard tins and poured them into the bowl, which he dramatically poured over his head, this time adding a series of silly noises. His kids fell onto the floor, clutching their chests in fits of hysterical laughter. His wife was so moved by her husband's sudden and surprising transformation that she didn't even even mind the fact that there was custard covering her new carpet. She couldn't remember when she'd last seen him this happy. Come to think of it, it was probably the last time she'd seen him covered in custard. But as I said before, let's not go there. Stop trying to make me go there, you dirty animals. He continued to experiment with different pouring techniques and noises until he'd entirely exhausted his custard supplies, at which point he went immediately to the shops and bought a vat of custard. His kids had told all of their friends about their hilarious dad and the custard routine, and consequently he found himself being hounded by children, asking him to perform for them. He was only too happy to oblige. 
Of course, the kids loved him, but their parents weren't too sure. When they heard about the man who covered himself in custard and entertained children, they were more than a bit suspicious. After all, the man in question was a high-flying banker. He was the reason why they'd all been pinching the pennies for the last few years, and now he was luring their children to him for highly circumspect reasons. But then when the parents saw what was actually going on, and saw that it was merely a harmless bit of kids' theatre, they immediately forgave him for his financial transgressions. They booked him to do their children's parties. The banker quit his job and spent all of his life savings on custard. Sorry, I got a bit carried away there. I've essentially spent 500 words writing a fictional story based solely on the final minute of a children's entertainer's act. I think it's safe to say that I'm definitely in no position to call anyone else mad. Observing the children's uproarious reaction to the man's custard-covering finale, we were a little bit nervous about having to follow such a clearly successful performance. We didn't have any custard or any props with us at all. We were just planning on singing a few funny folk songs and telling a few stories. And let's face it, that isn't anywhere near as exciting for kids as a man covering himself in custard. But there wasn't any time to change course now though. We were straight on and we didn't have time to go out and get emergency custard supplies. The children seemed to enjoy our act though and a few of my jokes got some laughs from the kids but I'd be a fool to think that I could rival the custard routine. Still, we probably get paid the same as he did and we didn't have to cover ourselves in custard. So who's the real winner? Our final gig in Australia turned out to actually not be our final gig because we've been asked to appear at the final concert. This is apparently when four of the highlight acts finish off the festival with a concluding concert. So basically, our reward for being so brilliant is to play for an extra 30 minutes for no extra money while all of the other less brilliant performers get to have the night off and drink the free beer that's been laid on by the festival. Tomorrow might pose yet another challenge to this 365 consecutive daily blogging project. So far, I have managed 88 days in a row and have blogged every day that I've been in Australia, even though one of them had to be recorded and uploaded from the airport. Our outward flight took 22 hours. Our return flight is 26 hours. Our transport to the airport leaves the hotel at 10am tomorrow, which will be 12am British time. So I might be able to hurriedly publish the blog post bang on 10am as the bus pulls away from the hotel and out of Wi-Fi range. Although, this would mean writing another dollop as soon as I got back to the hotel tonight, and then having to record it before 10am the next day. Which is doable, but I'd be writing two dollops within just a few hours of each other. Also, I'm not even sure when I'll get a chance to record this dollop. It might not be until I get back from the hotel later tonight. I don't really want to have to record and publish today's dollop, then immediately start writing the next one during the night, and then get up early the next day to record and publish tomorrow in time for when we leave for the airport, but this might be the safest option to ensure that the challenge remains intact. We've got quite a lot of time to kill in Canberra Airport, and I'll probably have a few hours to write it there, and providing that there is free Wi-Fi, then I could release it from the airport. I'll be back home by about 7pm on the Wednesday, and I could publish Wednesday's dollop then, which I'll have had loads of time to write on the excruciatingly long plane journey. I appreciate that this isn't particularly interesting to listen to, but this challenge is just as much a logistical one 
as it is creative. Plus, there's bound to be someone listening to this who gets turned on whenever I start talking about logistical aspects of these dollops, and they just grin and bear all the nonsense in between the occasional bits of logistical talk, impatiently wading through all the tedious blabber about kettles and vegan porn stars and women dressed up as dogs, in the hope that a bit of logistics will be just around the corner. At least the last two paragraphs would have satiated your appetite for a little bit, hopefully. Apparently, there's a national airport strike on Wednesday, meaning that the airports of Australia will be understaffed. I don't know which elements of the airport staff are going to be striking. I hope it's not the pilots. The strike doesn't commence until Wednesday, meaning that it'll be working on the Tuesday when our flight takes off. It would be more than a little harrowing to be thousands of feet above the Indian Ocean and suddenly to hear the pilot's voice over the plane saying, Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking, just to let you know that it's now 12am on Wednesday, Australian time, which means that I am now technically on strike. Therefore, unless I hear from my union that there's been a settlement reached, I shall be relinquishing control of this plane. I'd like to apologise for any inconvenience that this may cause. He then sings, You won't get me, I'm part of the union, till the day I die, as our plane begins to spiral out of control and rapidly descend, making the till the day I die line of the song especially pertinent. Let's just hope it's those useless people at the entrance to the plane who are striking with their random, pointless, arbitrary questions about whether we have anything dangerous in our bags. As if someone at the door of the plane is suddenly going to turn round and say, you know what, you've just reminded me that I actually do have an AK-47 in my bag. I can't believe that I forgot about that. Goodness knows how it got through security. Thank goodness you're here and that you said something. Otherwise, I might have had one of my funny turns and killed some people. There's been warnings that due to the strikes, our journey time may be increased. I'm a folk singer, so naturally I support people's right to strike, but if they dare increase my journey time to the point that I don't get Wednesday's dollop released, then my sympathy for them will be destroyed. I just hope that everyone can come to some sort of agreement so that the 366 daily consecutive blogs challenge doesn't come to an end because of striking airport staff or death-inducing pilots. I'm writing today's dollop in the eating area of the hotel. Our flight isn't until 9pm, and although we had to check out of our rooms by 10am, they have allowed me to stay in this area until we need to leave. I'm not sure whether that invitation will still stand once I start reading out the audio version of the dollop. There are people eating around me, and so I'm going to have to make sure that this dollop is completely family-friendly, as I don't want to be turfed out onto the streets by the hotel staff for putting their customers off eating, because I'm audibly discussing vegan porn stars or pissing dog ladies. Oops. Uh, no one's batted an eyelid so far. They're all still talking. It's fine. Okay. From now on, I'll keep it family friendly. Because I'm going to have to read those words out now. I did. But it was fine. As you can hear, it's fine. They're just still talking. Completely oblivious in their own little worlds here. I could probably shout it louder. Pissing dog ladies. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing. I mean, I can't see. Obviously, I'm blind. Someone may have just glared at me, but there's been no audible change there in the sound. Should I shout it again, see how loud I can do it? <laughs> it's not push my luck. There is a devilish part of me that wants to write something really inappropriate, knowing that I'll then be forced to read it out loud. But I must control the demon inside me. Wanker. No, stop it. Arsehole. No, don't make me do this. There are people eating. Shit. Cock. No, demon. Be gone. I'm an idiot. I'm going to have to read all of that out now. I did, but they're still just 
talking. It's it's fine. It's that laid-back attitude that you get in Australia, the whole no-worries attitude. Even a man just shouting shit and cock and wanker out loud in a hotel reception area hasn't elicited any concern from anybody, seemingly. I could delete this dollop and start the whole thing again, but if I do that, then it means that I might only get halfway through and then my battery on my laptop runs out, thus making me fail this challenge. The song currently playing in the hotel seems to entirely consist of a man singing, You've got to take your medicine. We've got to take our medicine. I've got to take my medicine. Repeatedly, over and over again, with the occasional, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder how songs like this one ever get made. So thanks for popping into the radio station and talking with me today. Now, I've got to ask you, your song about the medicine, how do you possibly come up with such powerful lyrics? Well, <laughs> it's quite a story attached to that song. You see, I was visiting my father in hospital, and a nurse came to him and said, You've got to take your medicine, Bob. Bob is my father's name, you see. Hence why she said Bob. Anyway, I turned to the nurse and I said, What did you just say? And she said, I said, you've got to take your medicine, Bob. At this point, I sprang to my feet and embraced the nurse, thanking her for providing me with the inspiration for my next surefire hit. I then immediately wrote it down. You've got to take your medicine, Bob. I wrote excitedly. Unfortunately, all of this had completely distracted the nurse from her originally intended reason for coming to us in the first place, which was, of course, to give my dad, Bob, his medicine. Sadly, this resulted in him dying later that day. However, as he slipped away, we had an emotional moment where I sang him the first draft of my song. Yes, he, Bob, my dad, was the very first person to hear that song. You've got to take your medicine, Bob. You've got to take your medicine, Bob. You've got to take your medicine, Bob. The nurse overheard my song and came sprinting towards my dad's bed. Shit, she said. I forgot to give him his medicine. But it was too late, for in that moment, he died. Two really amazing things happened as a result of that incident. I was able to sue the nurse for negligence, and my dad left me a small fortune in his will. I was able to use the money from the nurse and my dad in order to buy a recording studio in which I recorded my surefire hit all about my dad needing to take his medicine. Looking back on that moment, it's as if it was meant to be. You know, as if fate had predestined that event to happen. Obviously, being a professional songwriter, I knew that the song needed a little bit more than just, you've got to take your medicine, Bob. It took me days of painstaking work to get the song perfect. In fact, I had to miss my dad's funeral because I was just too busy writing. The first thing I thought was, we need to lose the Bob because... It's not scanning properly. I then thought that just singing You've Got to Take Your Medicine over and over again was a bit bland. I was at a complete loss over what to do. (laughs) These things take time and concentration to make happen. But then I had a dream, and it just came to me there and then in that dream. You've got to take your medicine. We've got to take our medicine. I've got to take my medicine. I woke up in a cold sweat. I needed to write it down before I forgot it. I jumped out of bed and searched feverishly for a pen, all the while singing, You've got to take your medicine. We've got to take our medicine. I've got to take my medicine. Over and over again, fearing that I might forget this moment of divine inspiration. Eventually, I found a pen and wrote it down, but I felt there was still something missing. But what? 
The song was almost there, so nearly perfect, but there was just something. It took another couple of weeks before inspiration to reach me. Again, it came in the form of a dream. You've got to take your medicine. We've got to take our medicine. I've got to take my medicine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, I woke up in a cold sweat, my heart racing. I jumped out of bed. Where was the damn pen? Eventually I found it and added those final words to the song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wrote, my hands shaking with excitement. I read the words through over and over again. God, it was perfect. I immediately went into my recording studio and laid down the vocal track. I listened to it back on loop over and over again, just sobbing, so overcome with emotion was I. And that, my friends, is the story of that song that we all know and love today. And I want to dedicate it to my dad, whose death made the song possible. In a way, his death brought that song to life. And in some ways, you could say that my dad lives on through that song. The song seemed to literally just consist of a man singing those same words over and over again. Then again, I've just kind of done a similar thing for today's dollop, essentially stretching out the same single point in over a thousand words, except I haven't made any money from it. On the plus side, at least I haven't killed anyone or got them fired by writing this dollop. Unless the hotel receptionist who let me stay is fired because I've scared away all of her potential diners by talking to myself, calling myself a wanker and an arsehole. Oops, it again. This is my final dollop from Australia. Not that I've actually mentioned anything about Australia in this dollop. Tomorrow I shall be back home. As an extra special treat for putting up with my ramblings from Australia, I'll head straight to Sainsbury's as soon as I get home and have a chat with the shop assistant, because that's what you all want from these dollops, isn't it? I mean, the people who were sitting to my left have gone, but I don't think that was because of me. They seemed absolutely fine. And, uh, there's a few other people around, but no one really seems bothered. I mean, I was sort of hoping that people would break out into a spontaneous applause when I'd finished, but uh, <laughs> just seems to be going about their days absolutely fine. <sighs> Thank you for listening. We shall be back tomorrow in England.